Hello, I'm Ryan Cook, and this is Civic Tech Chat, a podcast about the civic technology movement. We seek to harness the power technology has to improve the delivery of public services to people everywhere. Welcome back for another episode of Civic Tech Chat. If you liked our content so far, head on over to your podcast app and give us a five-star review. Doing so helps us reach a broader audience and helps motivate me to continue making these episodes. This week, we're joined by David Holmes, Engineering Director with the United States Digital Service. We'll get to learn and lean on his experience as we talk about a few topics, including the idea of technology accessibility, partners and the transition of business rules into code, as well as mentoring and developing engineers on engineering teams. I know that I enjoyed this conversation, and hopefully you will too. So let's go ahead and hop right into it. David, thank you so much for coming on to Civic Tech Chat. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Really excited to be on uh, this podcast. Um, so my name is David Holmes. I'm the Director of Engineering at U.S. Digital Service. Um, and kind of a little bit of detail, just in case some folks don't know what U.S. Digital Service is, is we're basically a startup in the White House that's tasked with handling, you know, really tough technical problems and using design and technology to deliver better government services uh, to the people. Um, like, for, for instance, like, right, does it make sense I can order McDonald's from an app on my phone and, like, it just shows up, right, and just a magical, easy-to-use app? But if, like a veteran wants healthcare, they have to go through this entire complex process. So like we work on like those tough problems that we try to make something that shouldn't be that hard and just make it easier so that way people can can use them in a better way. As director of engineering, I pretty much oversee the entire engineering community. And my main focus there is just making sure that all the engineers are happy, working with agency leads that we have to ensure that all the projects we have is fully staffed up. Um, I'm also on the hiring committee. Uh, that reviews all the interviews and transcripts and make a determination if someone should come on board or not. I also do some biz dev work like, in between it. Uh, as like we're starting new agencies and new projects, like I'll, I'll talk to some of the folks there at those agencies before we start uh, the project. Uh, it sounds like you've got uh, quite a bit of different hats there you have to wear. I, I imagine you're a pretty busy person over there with the USDS role. Yeah, a little busy. <laughs> I'm always down to, to have conversations like this. Awesome. Uh, speaking of your USDS presence, uh, you have a page on there that talks a bit about you and perhaps why you joined USDS. And in that page, you cite an article and a Hacker News post that links to it from 2015 as a point of inspiration for your joining the agency. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, um, so I was on Hacker News, you know, this one day, one day as I usually am. And I see this this article, I think the headline was something like, um, Obama stealth startup in the White House. And I was like, oh, like at the time I was definitely working at a bunch of different startups and I loved working in the startup culture. And I was like, one in the federal government? Like, yes, I'm, I'm on board. And I clicked the article. I didn't even read the comment. I just clicked the article. And I got halfway through the article and I was just like, I got to apply right now. And I just went and just sent my resume in. And a few months yeah, I was here at USCS, um, just off that Fast Company article and the Hacker News Post. On that same page, you also mentioned that learning the plethora of acronyms used in government was a challenge uh, as you got started, which is certainly understandable. There are quite a few of those that float around. Over time, uh, has that gotten easier? And uh, do you have a favorite acronym among them? It has definitely gotten a lot easier, and I just rattle them off in conversation, so I apologize if I use some here. Um, I don't know if I have a favorite among them, but I definitely have a favorite government website URL. 
And so the registrar to, to register a .gov a web address is .gov.gov. And that's just my favorite URL. Like, I just picture being in that room making a decision, what should we name this? And someone was just like, just .gov. And it's like, yes, we know it's a .gov, but what should we name this? No, I mean like .gov.gov. If you go to .gov.gov, that is the .gov register for all the government <laughs> URL. So this is my favorite <laughs> website, government website URL. And I think my favorite URL almost anyway. <laughs> Oh, I, I think it would be amazing to have been a fly on the wall for that meeting. I imagine that turned into very much like a who's on first kind of situation. Yeah, I imagine. I just, yeah, I wish I could just go back and just be in that room. <laughs> oh and uh, as you mentioned, um, you know, you're currently a, a director of engineering. Uh, I imagine there were some steps before that in your career. Uh, how would you describe that path as you've ventured upward toward now leading a practice? So back when I came to USCS in 2016, um, I started working on the Social Security Administration project uh, called Disability Claims Processing System, and that was basically how do we make the disability, disability claims processing system a little bit better. Then I moved on to Department of Education where we help students get out of debt in default because um, tons of people are in student loan debt. And then I moved on to Small Business Administration where we help disadvantaged businesses apply to get to the 8A certification a little bit easier. Some people was paying up to $30,000 into this program, which is free because it was so complicated. So we just made that a little bit easier. Now it's 100% digital and we could do everything just straight online. Um, and then I went to FEMA where we help with the grants ministry modernization where they're trying to take 10 different grant systems um, down into one. And as you can imagine, there's 10 different systems. You don't even know which one to actually go to. So we're trying to just, how do we you know consolidate that down into one? And I became, uh, director of engineering here at USCS. So it's been an interesting journey and a lot of impact. So, so how I would describe that path is just, you know, interesting and impactful, right? <laughs> um, across the, the, the uh, breadth of, you know, in three years, I was able to have so much impact across many different agencies. As an engineer, uh, kind of trying to make that impact, as, as you mentioned, I imagine that there's a plethora of different tools and technologies that you've used along the way. In your experience so far, do you have a, a favorite or a go-to uh, programming language or or tool set? Uh, and if so, uh, why is that your choice? Um, so my go-to programming language is Python. <laughs> um, and the reason why it's my choice is, so like on MacBooks and Linux, it comes installed by default. And just the Python standard library, you could just do so much just with the standard library. And that's just using my go-to, especially if I just want to write like a simple script or something like that. Um, I just I just default, just jump straight into Python. And my go-to tool, I would probably say for my editor, I use Sublime. I just love it. <laughs> um, it just opens fast. It can open, you know, large files. And I know there's like VS Code and Adam and all those um, new things coming out. But just Sublime just, just gets me. I even pay for it because I'm probably like, <laughs> because like it's just so great. I, I can definitely uh, understand both those choices. Uh, I, I myself rather enjoy both Sublime and Python. So I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you on those opinions. <laughs> All right, uh, I'd like to uh, go ahead and uh, have us uh, switch gears here a little bit. And uh, we're going to end up talking through a couple of different topics, uh, including some stuff about accessibility, uh, some stuff about partners and the idea of like turning business rules into code, and then a little bit about uh, mentoring and the development of engineers. Uh, to start that, though, I'd like to hop into the accessibility portion of our conversation. And to start that off, uh, I think there's an assumption out there that public sector projects have to work a little harder at accessibility than those in the private sector. I suppose there's the assumption that the public side can hand wave 
or can't hand wave some of that away via audience targeting, like maybe the private sector can. Is, is that something in your experience that seems to be true? Whether it is or isn't, like what kind of impact does that have on your work? Yep. Um, so it's definitely true. So um, by law, we have to do something that's called 508 compliance. And what that is, is just um, a law that requires federal governments to be safe and accessible for people with disabilities. And like a couple of months ago, I was actually just doing some fact checking. 20% of Americans have some type of disability. And a lot of the work that we do impacts some of the most vulnerable populations. We need to make sure that the work that, that we are outputting actually is usable by, you know, every American uh, citizen. And we want to make sure that we can help those folks as well. So um, the impact that it has on our work is nothing goes by without 508 compliance testing. And I think that's a good thing. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I've heard folks often describe work to like get that sort of compliance. Just, I've heard them describe it in a way that makes it seem like it's a, a hard problem, and to put that in quotes. Uh, is that something you've observed? And are there patterns that you try to follow to, to get to that end goal? No, I don't think it's a hard problem at all. One of the things that, you know, that some people feel like is hard, it's like actually built into the web. So there's things like alternate text for images and um, make sure that you keep, you know, people who are visually impaired or blind or you know, colorblind in mind when you're picking design colors. Um, you know, and, and a large part of what we do is we talk to the users, right? And we say like, hey, how would you use this? So we actually go out and, and talk to, you know, the uh, most vulnerable population. So how would you actually use this, this application? And then we work with them to make sure that it's, it's easily accessible for them as well. Um, but I don't think it's a hard problem. And there are some things you could do to learn more about, you know, usability testing for 508 compliance as section 508.gov, or you could use the U.S. web design system, um, which is 508 compliant. Oh, for uh, folks that aren't uh, familiar with that system, uh, could you give us kind of like the high level of what the, uh, the web design system is? Yeah, it's pretty much like Bootstrap. So if uh, listeners are familiar with like the uh, uh, Bootstrap uh, CSS framework, it's pretty much like that. It just makes it a little bit easier to build websites and um, build your uh, user interface. Um, and we did one internally for for our websites, and then we branched out and open sourced that with the help of like 18F and others, um, which is a US web design system that you know, a big part of that is making sure that accessibility is like up and forward and center. And the, that, that U.S. web design project, is that then, uh, is that like an open source initiative? Is that something folks can, just like anybody out there can use and contribute to? Yep. And we have tons of people who already just uses it for their websites all across the federal government. And um, it's open. You can go to designsystem.digital.gov to go uh, learn more about it. Um, and a lot of our projects from, you know, the work that we do at the VA, even down to NASA uses it. Oh, wow. That's, that's uh, quite a wide uh, berth of folks getting involved with it. Yep. I uh, also, like, in thinking about accessibility, I, I also get the sense that having it in mind early on in a project seems to be a thing that's desirable. Uh, whether it's reading the, you know, United Kingdom's service manual stating something like, think about accessibility from the start or uh, from the U.S. web design system that we've been talking about for a moment, uh, which is quoted as saying, accessibility is fundamental. With that in mind, like, do those intentions then shape how y'all at USDS put projects and teams together? Yep. So on every project and um, team that we have, there's a designer there who is super focused on that. And we do a lot of user research. So we are able to see those problems up front too. 
Um, and because we have designers on every single team who can make sure that everything is five-way compliant, like it does, like it does shape how we make sure that how we put teams together. And again, a large part of this that we do is user research, right? Going on things over to using the C and how you know we could best serve them. And uh, we've mentioned the idea of being uh, five hundred eight compliant a couple of times. Could you give uh, the audience maybe a, a little bit of an idea of like what that what that means as far as five hundred eight compliance? And is there anything on the on the private sector side that kind of compares to that? One of the things that that five hundred eight compliant does is just ensures that we aren't, like you said earlier, just building it for a target audience, and that we are building it for everybody. And it's just a law that Congress set up. Um, I believe a couple of decades ago, just to make sure that all federal websites are accessible by everybody. And if, if there was a one piece of advice you could give somebody starting a project that has that intention of like, I want to make sure that this project does respect uh, those those sorts of standards uh, as they're getting going. What what advice would you would you give that person? I definitely tell them um, to check out section508.gov, and you can learn way more um, about how to. Uh, make your website more accessible by people with disabilities. And by also, the other thing I would say is, you know, for, especially in the private industry or in other government agencies, talk to your users. You know, you may not actually know that your users are having difficulty accessing your website. So just go out there and, and try and talk to as much of your users as possible. Awesome. I, I, I'm sure that there's folks out there that'll uh, appreciate those insights as they uh, kind of figure out how their, their own work day to day is going to happen. I'd like to now uh, go ahead and uh, talk a little bit about uh, the idea of partners and, and how business rules can become code. And uh, to start that off, as you're starting a new project, let's say you're working with a, an, an agency, perhaps maybe even for the first time, uh, there's probably a set of interactions that happen. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about what those are like getting started? Yep, so as we start, at, uh, part of our project selection criteria is making sure that we pick projects that does the uh, greatest good for the most amount of people in need. And that's where we start our base at, right? So we get a lot of offers to help with stuff, but then it just doesn't fit kind of our, our project selection criteria. And how those initial interactions are like is once we go on the ground floor, one of the things that, that we need is air cover. So we'll probably talk to a deputy secretary or secretary or maybe undersecretary or CIO or somebody um, kind of at that, that top level of the organization hierarchy and make sure we have that air cover and then have a project like scoped out for us. We just don't want to be there because you want us there, right? Like, like have a, a particular project scoped out um, for us to do. And so that the uh, initial interactions are once we have that air cover, we do what is called a discovery spread. And over the next two weeks, we'll just kind of talk to people on the ground and everybody within the organization to kind of learn more about this. Um, because we don't know what we don't know. So the best thing that we could do is just go talk to all the stakeholders and people involved in the project and just learn as much as we can. And then from there, we, we deliver a report and kind of go and figure out, like, is it something that we could do? Or sometimes it's just that person who's on the, the um, you know, ground level, you know, in the trenches doing the work who has a great idea. And now we are able to just empower them and put them in contact with the deputy secretary and say, like, hey, you should listen to this person because they know exactly what they're talking about and what they're doing. And, you know, part of the reason my air cover is so important and how we, why we try to go at the top of the hierarchy and organization all the way to, um, to in between and, and everywhere uh, uh, in between 
is because, you know, it, sometimes things go wrong, right? Sometimes we're on the ground floor and, and somebody's like, oh, I can't give you access to that data. And if you go like, oh, no, the CIO said, like, it's okay to give us access to that. So that's why that air cover is really, really important for us to have. One thing I, th- I think I heard you, you mention in the exp- explanation was this idea that there's some criteria about whether or not the organization considers the work the sort that you'd like to engage with. Could you talk a little bit about the, the process behind that sort of determination a little bit? Yeah, so um, all the leadership at USCS sort of gets together and we just talk about it. And uh, we'll have like an initial conversation with the, the person who acts and say, okay, um, um, what is the problem that you're actually trying to solve? And then we'll just have an a in-depth conversation about that problem you're trying to solve. And sometimes it may just be solved in that simple phone call, right? Sometimes it's just, uh, yeah, you're trying to get the CI/CD pipeline set up, like, yeah, you know, use Jenkins or something. Um, um, and sometimes it gets more complicated and we actually have to go in and, and figure out uh, what's, what's the ground truth. I, I would venture to guess along the way that there's probably a non-zero number of occasions where uh, folks you have to work with or the organizations themselves uh, can be a bit difficult, for lack of a better for, uh, word, to uh, collaborate with. Are, are there strategies that you found effective at addressing those kinds of situations? Outside of, you know, executive air cover, making sure that we have, like, that person who can, like, vouch for us and say, like, no, no, these people are supposed to be here. I think one of the biggest things that we do is we just listen to the partners and stakeholders. And we try to make sure to understand where they're coming from and and try to say, like, hey, we're here to help you. We're not here to, you know, tell you that you're doing the wrong and that we're, we're better than you or anything like that. Like, no, we're just simply brought in to help and see how we can make this better because, one thing I definitely learned um, working on multiple different agencies is everybody at each agency really, really does care. And sometimes it's just really hard for them to, you know, share that uh, out to, to the rest of like the organization. And one thing that we come with is like because of this executive air cover, we can actually get those voices heard to uh, a deputy secretary or undersecretary. So that's one way we found it to be in... Uh, to work in those difficult to collaborate situations. And, you know, just to tell them that we're temporary, right? We're not here to take your job, right? At USCS, we have tour duty models. So we're here from as short as three months up to four years. And um, we, we're not trying to take your jobs, we're not trying to take over the project. We, we just simply want to help. So you mentioned that a, a significant part of that is is getting that, uh, it sounds like kind of like buy-in from, from that higher level executive. What does that usually look like? What are those interactions tend to be like as you try to try to get that buy-in? Usually just a, a couple of meetings, right? Um, and just saying like, hey, yes, we do have, you know, um, so like, for instance, at some agencies, there's no engineer. So they actually can't tell if like the vendor or, or contractor is telling them the truth or not. And one of the things we can go and say, like, hey, we have a, a ton of engineers and we can go and actually sit with you and tell you like, no, this is wrong and this is right and just help you through that. So a lot of it, it looks it usually just comes through our administrative mat cuts and then he'll like uh, kind of, you know, determine like if it's like something that 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 we should do or not. And I, I believe I, I also heard you describe the the tour of duty model uh, in there as far as the uh, like the basically the fact that you're there on a temporary basis. Um, how does that impact like the way you both like shape that relationship and the, and, and the project there, knowing that there's some sort of date where I guess there, I would imagine there's a handoff of some sort that happens? Yeah, uh, so we, we try not to be load bearing because of this tour of duty model. And 
how it changed relationships is because I think of this tour of duty model that we have, like it, it can give a sense of urgency to the project, right? So because we're not here for many years, right? Let's try and figure out how we can actually start the process of this, right? So one of the things that we've been successful in is moving folks and agencies from a waterfall model where they try to build requirements over two years and then they hand it to a vendor, which then takes another two years to an agile uh, method, right? Where we could kind of build this piece by piece. And as we talk to the users, we can, you know, we can go in and, and switch gears as, as we get the user feedback to things that, that, that we found aren't working as well. And I imagine that, uh, once the the tour of duty as we've been putting it starts and you start to work with your partner on a, putting a solution together that you can encounter some pretty complex requirements and uh business rules uh that then ostensibly has to be represented by some amount of code uh how do you folks at usds tend to approach um, addressing those complexities and, and that kind of translation layer that has to happen you know, the best way we could do it is by listening. So I remember being in a conversation not understanding why FASTA was super complicated. And then we actually talked to the engineers on the ground. There's a ton of business rules and tons of business logic that actually goes into FASTA and how they make determinations. So the, the best way we've learned is just by just listening to the people who have 20 years of experience on the ground, right? And then saying, okay, how can we make this application simpler while still understanding those business rules? Um, and sometimes some of those rules are policies and we can actually talk to the lawyers at the agency and say, hey, this policy was done three decades ago. Does it still make sense to be using this today? And that way we could try to reduce some of these business rules as well. That, that's an interesting comment you made there at the end. Uh, ha, have you observed agencies making uh, policy changes in, in a reaction to a, a, a project with you folks? Yep. Um, so one of the things that we have is a DITAP program where we help uh, train up some of the procurement folks there in a way that allows them to do agile con uh, contracts a little bit better. And, you know, that that DITAP program changed federal policy. Oh, well, that, that's pretty cool. Um, but I I do find that, yeah. Um, so like, for instance, there was a policy where uh, um, at a particular agency, they needed an alert box to pop up that lets you know that you're on a government website at all times. And uh, we actually talked to everybody and got them down to like, you don't need this big JavaScript alert. They wanted a JavaScript alert to pop up every time someone's trying to log into a system that you're logging into a government system. And we said like, okay, show us that policy and why we're in. And then we found the policy and it just says like it has to be there somewhere. So just put that, you know, near the login screen and not this JavaScript pop up that would have been bad for a user experience for everybody. At times, the rules and requirements we mentioned before could shift and change, as you might imagine. Uh, are there aspects of your approach to engineering that help uh, alleviate those impacts? So like in the private industry, we have the agile development for the software device, uh, development cycle that government's just not on the, the curve yet. So we try to implement that so that way we can make these um, changes as they happen and we don't have to wait for waterfall requirements where they would spend the, the two years up front, and I was talking about before. But then by the time it's two years, Congress may have changed the laws, right? So now your project's already, you know, behind just on the law itself. So we try and go in and we say, okay, let's just do these agile, maybe we'll try four-week sprints, because they're not used to, they're used to like six-month releases. So we'll try, all right, let's try four-week sprints, then we can slowly work it down to three weeks and two-week sprints. And that way, agile requirements come down, and we talk to users, and those requirements may change as we talk to the users we can just shift really quickly in the next sprint. 
And uh, you, you mentioned uh, using some things from like the, the, the agile approach or, or framework uh, to acting. I, I believe you mentioned, like, for example, like sprint length. Um, are there other aspects of that framework of doing things that you found that are easier to get organizations to, to uh, take on themselves and, or things that are harder? I definitely found just getting people to release things a little bit difficult, right? Because they're used to just releasing a whole thing and not just an MVP, right? Every feature has to be, be in there day one. But like, but what we found is as we can show them that we can release slowly and iterate and keep iterating on it, we have been we have been successful in that, right? That we could show them that it's an MVP. We're going to release it out to users. Let users use MVP. We're going to just take a small piece of this program, release it out to the public. And then from there, see how the users interact and then make iterative, iterative changes based upon that. In, in your experience there, I, I noticed that you mentioned like a, you, you kind of have to show them that, that it works. Uh, are there things that organizations like tend to look for to see as like, I don't know, proof for lack of a better, a better term that the approach is, is more effective? So one of it is, so uh, uh, Health and Human Services, that's Center for Medicaid and Medicare, they have this mainframe for Medicare payment processing. It's a 60-year-old system, you know, written in COBOL, and they've been trying to modernize it for decades at this point. And one of the things that we came in is we said, all right, we're not going to try and modernize the entire thing all at once, right? There's a 60-year-old code, uh, code, and it's been there for a while, like there's tons of of logic and business rules and things like that. How about we just take a small piece of it, right? And move that to the cloud and let's see how that works. And we were successful doing that, taking that small piece of it, moving it to the cloud. And now that helps build trust that health and human services that, okay, like maybe we actually can modernize this if we just do it kind of slowly and piece by piece and move it over to the cloud eventually. So that's one approach that we found that works is just kind of just taking a small piece of something and then just moving it to the cloud can have like tremendous, you know, impact of an agency to help them uh, see that uh, uh, that it is possible to move this, you know, six-year-old mainframe COBOL program to the cloud. Okay. I, I think what I'm hearing from you there is that, are you saying that like once you've shown them that you can deliver like a real world thing, that that confidence seems to grow? Yeah. And other things that we do is um, we build prototypes, right? So we show them like, you know, Hey, you know, you said this thing could take two years, but we pretty much did 80% of it over the weekend, right? And here's a prototype for it. And that's been really, really successful in showing that it is possible to move the needle forward. Uh, it's, it's also interesting that you mentioned like uh, prototyping as a, as a phase uh, possibly that, that you might engage with there. What, what would you say that like a prototyping phase is like for a, for a project over, over there at USDS? Yeah. Uh, so first, we start out by talking to all the users and figuring out, okay, what part of the system are you having problems with? Then we'll. It depends on if it's a fresh, brand new project or it's like it's a current project. Uh, but I'll take it like as a fresh, brand new one that that we're launching. Um, we'll talk to users and kind of get like when they come to let's say www.example.gov, what are you trying to get out of it, right? Like, what is your end goal here? And then we'll we'll start. Sometimes it's just on paper, right? Sometimes a prototype will just put them put a paper, just like a thing drawn up, and ask them like, "Hey, okay, what would you do here? What would you do here? What would you do here?" And then, um, and then maybe we'll make a digital version of that, and then put that in front of users and, and just see how they interact with that. Um, and that's usually how we start, and we just keep going back for user feedback um, as we continuously, you know, improve the the. System that that we are currently working on. So uh, now that we've uh, talked a little bit about uh, kind of your relationship with partners and 
the idea of like translating business rules into code and kind of the, the things around those topics. I'd like to have us um, switch over to our third topic for this conversation, which is focused on mentoring and developing engineers. Because as you might imagine, what one aspect of building an engineering team is figuring out how to empower members of that team to, to grow and develop. Uh, you as, as an engineering leader uh, and quite a senior one, uh, how do you prefer to go about that sort of thing? Yep. Um, so part of how uh, we empower them is so most engineers come at it just a GS-15 level, which is the highest you can uh, go in the government pay scale outside of like the SES role. And that helps us have a seat at the table. But one of the things that we do is um, just, you know, we're allowed to have a seat at those table at those deputy secretary meetings, right? So I don't have to be at those deputy secretary meetings. Like another engineer can, and you know, like trust. So once they come on board here, like like we explicitly trust them, right? That like I'm not gonna sit there and say you should do it my way. Like like we explicitly trust everybody to go out and solve the, these tough technical problems. And I, I would imagine in the environment y'all work in that there's probably a considerable amount of diversity and technologies used and, and tools needed for different projects. And I imagine that it's probably nigh impossible to make sure you have every single thing covered by, by staff, uh, meaning that like probably folks have to learn new things as they go on to different tours of duty. Um, are there processes or things that uh, folks there try to do in order to like get up to speed uh, for those sorts of things? Yeah. So for that Medicare project I was talking about earlier um, with the, um, putting things in the cloud. We had an engineer who learned COBOL just so they can do that. And he bought a book on Amazon <laughs> um, just so they can learn COBOL. So yeah, one of the things that we look for is people's ability to just adapt the situation and learn on the ground. So for example, I love Python, but we may go to an agency and they're Ruby on Rails shop and I have to be comfortable enough that, okay, like I'm willing to do Ruby on Rails because I, I don't want to change all the engineers from using Ruby on Rails to Python, right? Because I prefer it, right? And that's, that's a huge knowledge gap and then we have to do a ton of training and then we have to rewrite the entire site but like you know, i can just come in and help out and just jump in and on some roofing rails code so one of the things we definitely look at is for people's ability to kind of jump around and and be willing to learn and adapt the situation at hand and uh do folks in in the uh engineering practice there at usds engage in mentoring at all uh, and if so what, what does that look like for you folks Yep. Um, so we have a weekly engineering COP meeting where we're able to talk to one another and figure out, like, you know, for example, we have site reliability engineers, and some engineers aren't like as um, as up to date in site reliability engineering. So they can uh, talk to that, that engineer and just learn and mentor them. Um, one of the things, as um, I mentioned before, the tour duty model is so. You know, I'm in my uh, fourth year now, so I have to eventually roll off in April of next year, but I plan to like step down as director in sometime in January, February. So what I'm gonna do is talk to the, the community, send an email in August saying like, hey, if you would like to be director of engineering, you can come shadow me, go with this and some meetings and like really um, sit down with me over the next couple of months. So that way, as like, you know, I prepared it to handle this role, you know, I can have a bunch of engineers who can learn um, um, from me. And that way I don't have to, then we make the process fair, right? And that way I can show them like, okay, before you just jump in and apply, this is actually what the job is. That's uh, that's really cool. I, I did not realize that there were folks that got to uh, to, to shadow someone at your level uh, there in the agency. Yep. That's really neat. Yeah. Um, and I have tons of one-on-ones with people uh, just so I can kind of ensure that that like they're happy or just any questions I can ask for them. 
Um, and sometimes, you know, they'll ask me like, hey, I have, I'm having a certain problem at this particular agency. Um, since you've been on so many different agencies, what, what would be something like you would recommend or like, who can I speak to more about this? And I'm, um, you know, always willing to help people in that regard too as well. Since we're on the topic of mentoring, I thought perhaps we could give some set of our listeners the opportunity to get a tiny amount of free mentorship from you. Uh, to that end, if, if you could give any advice to an engineer, either like just starting out or kind of early on in their career, and they're like looking at what to do, uh, what would that advice be? Part of the advice I would definitely say is, you know, don't give up. A lot of things seem confused, like very, really confusing, but eventually one day it's all just going to click, right? Um, another thing especially that helped me, especially when, um, as I was, you know, becoming more of a web developer, was just going to hackathons and meeting the community and seeing what they're doing. Um, go to meetups, go to your local meetups, just, just keep meeting people, network, and just keep learning, don't stop. And um, like, again, I, it may seem very complicated at first, but it'll all make sense and click one day. Um, since you mentioned uh, meetups there at the end, uh, this may be geographically limited to who this is helpful for, but uh, are there any uh, meetups that you've observed that are like particularly good to go to? Yeah, so Call for America has tons of meetups all around the country. So you know, they have a brigade um, that people can um, go to their meetups and it's all around the country. And that's one I definitely recommend. They're doing really, really great work. And uh, I believe at the uh, kind of in your introduction, I think, is where I'm remembering that you said this. Uh, you mentioned that you yourself are kind of part of that uh, committee of folks that uh, help like figure out who who is like a good fit to, to hop on and and join uh, USDS. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Um, so in, in your in your work with that, uh, what kind of traits do you look for for a person that like, let's say there's like a listener out there that's like heard this conversation and they're like, yeah, like I want to do this. Like uh, what, what kind of traits would you think that they would be best for them to like, cultivate to be a, uh, a best fit? You know, one of the things we look for is mid to senior level folks, but uh, but we are always hiring like exceptional engineers. So, you know, we had a hack the Pentagon and we had an, uh, and from that hack the Pentagon, we hired an 18 year old uh, just for the summer to come in because they, they was able to do so exceptional. But for us, one of the things that we look for is just being flexible, independent, uh, you know, confident, but not cocky <laughs> um, and a team player overall. And, you know, someone that's willing to help fight through the bureaucracy. And the uh, desire to serve is one of the, the huge things that we look for. You mentioned the idea of, of kind of like being a, a team player. What, what, what does that mean in the context of, of, of USDS? Like, how, how would you describe that? Um, just being able to work with all different types of skill sets and people. And, you know, um, I think you mentioned earlier before that some people can be difficult to work with and just making sure that, that, that you know, they're not coming on board to yell at people, right? Just being, we're all, we're all <laughs> here together and we're all, Everybody in the federal government is trying to, you know, do the, the same goal is by giving, you know, by helping use design technology to give people the services that we have promised them in Congress, right? Um, so we're all here to do that. Now, let's say that some intrepid member of the audience has heard all of this and they've decided, that's me. I'm that future USDSer. Uh, how would you suggest they go about registering that interest? Um, so they could definitely go to usds.gov slash apply and we're always hiring because we have that Toro duty model. So we're constantly hiring and we're looking for, you know, engineers, designers, procurement people, uh, 
product um, managers. Um, we have a position here that we like to internally call bureaucracy hackers, you know, people who worked in government for 10, 15 years and gonna help us, you know, people who came from private industry navigate the bureaucracy. Um, we're always looking for, for talent um, recruiters. Um, but yep, uh, um, I would tell them, you know, this work is really, really impactful. And I came here, I moved down here with my family three years ago um, from New York City and it was a big move, it was very scary. <laughs> I won't lie, but if I had to do it all over again, I would do it again a hundred times over because because the work that, that you are able to do here is just really amazing. You know, I, I really appreciate your uh, willingness to show some vulnerability there. I, I don't know that I've heard uh, much better as far as like pitches for a, a role go. I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Um, so like this, this civic, I never did civic tech before this. And like, I think now uh, this job has ruined me, right? Like, I feel like I have to do civic tech after this. I can't go back to, you know, doing like Uber for dog walkers or something. I have to do, <laughs> it has to be civic tech. I mean, being able to make that impact. Nothing, like I said before, bureaucracy is hard, but you know, just when you know at the end of that, that light in the tunnel that you are really making a difference in someone's life. And anywhere you go in the federal agency, you are helping, potentially helping millions and millions of people. And I don't think there's no greater feeling than that. David, again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and share your, your thoughts and expertise with us here on Civic Tech Chat. Uh, as is tradition uh, on these episodes, we like to give the guests the opportunity to set us up with whatever concluding thoughts uh, they'd like to leave us with as we depart the episode. So for you, David, uh, what would those thoughts be? So back in 2016, I built a site and I, I showcased it out to the USCS and it uses the civil rights data collection set. And what that basically is, is every two years, Department of Education will go out and ask schools for information about students and just the school in general. So, and that information is broken down by total enrolled students, by gender um, and race. And one of the cool things that they have about it is um, that breaks it down further, right? So you could tell by race or ethnicity who was suspended and how many times, and then they break it down by how many students are in gifted program. So moving down here in DC, my son was around two or three years old at the time. So we knew we was gonna have to put him in school. So we knew we was gonna have to move if we stayed down here and figure out the perfect school for him. And I was at the Department of Education at the time and they asked us for our help on like, how should they release this civil rights collection data set? And before they was doing it by CDs and we was just like, well, first not by CDs anymore. <laughs> um, and maybe you could put uh, it just on a CSV and, and that way people can download it and they could throw it into Python and R if they want. So I ended up using this data set to find a good school for my son. And what we was looking for when I talked to my wife, we was looking for um, schools that was diverse, we only sent to go to a diverse school. And we was looking for schools that, while being diverse, didn't allow, equally allowed every uh, ethnicity and race of students to be into the gifted programs or, and a school that didn't have like a disproportion of like one particular group of students getting, um, getting suspended. Uh, so we found that perfect school um, using this data and it was pretty cool because I ended up being able to showcase this to the Deputy Secretary of Education at the time, James Cole, and I really got to sit down and share with them, like, this is why opening data is important because people like me, and, and you know, this was just something I built internally. It was built on Node.js and Postgres, and, and, and from that, uh, what ended up happening 
was so my son went to school he just graduated kindergarten a couple of weeks ago and before he graduated you know they gave him a letter and he's been put into the advanced reading program um which is like really exciting because as we know if if you get put in these programs early on like like it, it it enables you to be more successful in the future so that was really exciting and this data really helped pick that perfect school for my son and you know, all I wanted was just for him to go to a school where he had an equal, as a black and brown student, where he had equal opportunity to um, the same opportunities everybody else has in the school. And so over the weekend, I went to see how that changed because I knew this, uh, the CRDC data comes out every two years. So I went to see how that data changed compared to before. Like, is the school same like as like when we first originally picked it? And, you know, uh, looked at the data compared that they are the same um but then over i was just like well you know i use this for my wife and i right to find a perfect school but i'm sure everybody else would love to just look at this and at a point so i ended up releasing it um and it's on school diversity school diversity report.com and not anybody can try and find that good diverse school for their children and hopefully you know get hopefully for them it works out the same way it worked out for my son and I do think that that data set did help. So I really think, you know, as I'm monologuing here, <laughs> in my closing thoughts, like especially for, you know, the government listeners, uh, government folks of, of your listeners, like open sourcing data is like really important. And like people like me, I didn't even know about this data. So even promoting the data is important, but I didn't know about this data and it really helped me pick the good school for my son. I guess a monologue could have been a little bit better. but <laughs> I think that that, was rather good uh it's wow like the 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 way you managed to use your skills and and like the idea that this day was open to empower your son and then also to help empower others is is remarkable Uh, i I know there's going to be folks out there that are going to be inspired by that story yep and um for folks who just want to go you can go to school diversity report and and you can search it by zip code or your school name it's easier by zip code to find a school um, and now we can just pull up a, a report of it. But my inspiration for building it was, you know, um, you know, just making sure that my son had a fair, equal opportunity as everybody else in, um, in whatever school we put him in. Well, I, I really appreciate you sharing that story with us and also letting folks know uh, where they too can, can uh, take a look at that, at that tool and perhaps uh, help their kids out as well. It's um, all open source too. So you can find it on my GitHub at github.com com slash david e holmes um slash crdc um i originally built this in 2016 over a 20 percent project here at usds over a couple of days so it's not the best code mm-hmm. but it certainly works <laughs> um, um but if anybody wants to improve it they're more than welcome to submit pull requests excellent and i'll uh, i'll make sure to uh include links to uh both the the uh the, the site and the repo that you just mentioned uh for folks that want to explore and and maybe uh start submitting those prs for you yeah, awesome. I do want to thank you again for uh, taking the time to uh, be on the program. I, I have no doubt that the listeners out there are going to enjoy getting to hear your insights, uh, lessons learned, and just getting to learn from uh, your experience. Yeah, and thank you for having me. You can follow us on Twitter using the handle at civictechchat. Visit us on the web at civictech.chat or subscribe to us for content updates wherever it is you download your podcasts.